You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Friday, July 24, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by Max Weethy. But first, Jack Farley with the day's stories. Thanks, Ash. In Europe, the PMIs are showing signs of a continued recovery. The numbers coming out of Germany and France are looking particularly strong. Meanwhile, the U.S. reported its PMIs today, and they were nowhere near as robust. The services PMI increased to 49.6, while the manufacturing PMI reached a six-month high of 51.3. And the composite figure of manufacturing and services together is right smack in the middle at 50.0. Remember, a reading above 50 indicates a growth in output. So the fact that the composite figure was right at 50.0 means that the private sector is exactly on the knife's edge between an expansion and a contraction. In the world of residential real estate, we did see some promising news with sales of previously owned homes up 20.7%, but renters and landlords are facing an entirely different set of challenges. The missed payment rate continues to inch higher. It's now at a record of 32%, meaning that for the first month in July, almost one in three renters failed to pay their full rent. By the way, during that period, renters could turn to unemployment benefits, but these programs expire this Sunday. And over the next week, over 25 million Americans will be cut off from this assistance. In other news, the Bank of Russia lowered its key rate to a record low of four and a quarter percent. Oh, and also, Goldman finally settled its 1MDB case with Malaysia, but the stock price barely moved on the news. And Brooks Brothers received a bid from the Spark Group to buy the bankrupt entity for $305 million. That's quite a tidy sum, but there could be other suitors. It's rumored that the Italian Giglio Group is going to make an offer. But all eyes are on WHP Global, a syndicate of funds from BlackRock and Oaktree, the big players. Will there be another bid before the August 5th deadline? That'll be the interesting question going forward. And lastly, gold rides higher, soaring past the 1900 level to set a new record. Meanwhile, the DXY continues its slide. If you're interested in these topics, there are two Real Vision interviews that you need to watch. One is Hugh Hendry and Luke Groman, who did a masterclass on the dollar. That came out today. And then on Tuesday, the great Lynn Alden will be back to provide an update on her views on gold, silver, Bitcoin, treasuries, and of course, the almighty dollar. And with that, let's go to Ash and Max. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Thanks, Jack. Welcome back, Max. Thanks for having me, Ash. I know uh, maybe some people are disappointed that I'm not Ral, but I'll do my best. Nobody's ever disappointed to see you, Max. (laughs) All right, if you say so. So, Max, I understand you're looking at the S&P, the precious metals complex, and the dollar. What are you looking at today? Well, I just think that those are interesting things this week. Obviously, we saw massive runs up in both silver and gold. Silver 
especially with a couple of like 7%, 5% days, which is a pretty massive move for silver, um, breaking out of some major ranges and then gold as well, hitting 1900 overnight last night, um, approaching all time highs with the sort of macro tailwinds. I think everybody is pretty well aware of with printing and um, fiscal spending going on. Uh, so I just think that that's, that's really where the, the action is. And then as well, it's not just the S&P, um, it's the S&P in relation to the dollar and inter-asset correlations and how they tend to change. Uh, you know, recently, I, I think maybe a couple months ago, um, on a week like this, you would have expected to see the dollar sort of spiking um, with risk off action in the markets like we've seen. We, I think we are, we're down in all the major indices and and pretty much across the, the globe. Um, and, and the dollar has been sliding. So, you know, that's that's a big change from the dollar as being this pretty simple, we're going risk off, go to the dollar for safety. Um, and I think that that's telling for for where it might be headed. Um, so that that's really what I, I've been watching. And, and correlation um, as well. You know, I talked to Greg Weldon today on Real Vision Live, uh, and it was really perfect to have him on because he 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 tracks everything. But he's well known for his commentary on precious metals, and and he's you know pretty bearish on the dollar um, and views it just as as a tide that's going to raise all boats in the commodity space. But specifically um, looking at, at gold and silver, and you know he was giving some uh, pretty lofty price targets um, for, for both of those metals, but then also other commodities in general. So I think that um, that's an interesting place to be. Yeah. You know, Max, that's a, a broad and comprehensive introduction about how all of these things relate together. So for those of you who aren't following this as closely as Max's, DXY peaked in March at 102 spot 99 uh, and is now basically slightly above the 52-week low at the close today at 94 41. I'm curious, uh, you know, I, I don't follow the silver market uh, very closely myself. And I'm curious, what, why is the action there? What's the distinction from gold? Uh, and and what, what is it that you're looking at when you think about silver? Well, the distinction is that it's not purely um, a monetary metal. It's also a industrial metal. So there are more factors that I think go into its pricing than just uh, than than just what is happening in in terms of monetary policy and and macro. I mean, it's it isn't always mined. Some of it comes from comes from reuse and recycling. So there there's just a lot of different dynamics. Nobody's pulling gold out of uh, like the gold that, that comes into the supply is, is coming from the ground. It's not coming from recycling. Right. Um, so there's just like a lot of different things. It was more that it had been, you know, it's been running up recently, but this week was definitely a huge move in the metal. Um, so that's why uh, people are, are wondering from a tactical perspective, you find yourself in these types of scenarios where if you were in the position, you might be sitting on a lot of profits and things have run very quickly. And if you haven't been in the position, um, but you believe in the thesis, which I think a lot of Real Vision viewers do, they understand uh, what the consequences of some of this fiscal and monetary policy can be, um, you might be having a little bit of FOMO. And you know things don't go up in a straight line all the time and there are pullbacks. And so it's really just a moment where you should be having that question of, is it time to take 
risk off or is it time to be a pig and go for those sort of home runs? And, and in talking to Weldon, you know, he was, uh, as I said, he put some pretty lofty price targets and definitely falls on the side of this is not a, a time to be, you know, de-risking yourself. But uh, oh, let me- everybody's everybody's time frame is different. Everybody's entry point is different. So I, I don't have the answer for everyone, but it's it's yeah. something that I'm thinking about. Let me jump in there. Actually, you were talking about monetary policy and fiscal policy uh, in relation to the aggregate performance of the U.S. economy. It's been a relatively uh, busy day in the news cycle. Um, some interesting things. The the thing that caught my eye, and I'm curious to hear your view on this, Max, uh, is so Bloomberg did a fairly extensive uh, piece today talking about the U.S. Uh, economic recovery stalling. The word they used was stalling. And they looked at this from a, a broad variety of domains. They they talked about credit card spending declining, air travel, ra- restaurants. But mostly what the piece focuses on is how the rate of improvement in the jobs recovery, as measured by the rate of improvement in initial claims, has declined, uh, effectively flatlining uh, in terms of, of that recovery effort. I'm curious what your thoughts are and how your view uh, of the things that you're watching is either driven by, impacted from the broader U.S. economic cycle. Yeah, so, you know, I'm not uh, much like a lot of the commentators who come on Real Vision's daily briefing. You know, what's happening in the equity markets doesn't make a lot of sense if you're looking at this sort of broader economic data. Um, But it does... Uh, what we're seeing with the the slowing of the improvement um, makes a lot of sense. You know, when you go down as low as we did, you are going to see a bounce. And it's a lot of kind of like what I was talking about with silver. Like when things happen that fast and that dramatically, there has to be some sort of exhale um, to to the move. And what what we saw with the bounce was exactly that. But I think you know, we're obviously not back to normal. We're sitting here talking over Skype. I'm in a different city from where I normally live. It, yeah. no, it's not going back right away. And I think anybody who who thinks that, uh, who legitimately thought that we would have a V-shape, a perfect V-shaped recovery that brought us all the way back was just, just insane. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's par for the course yeah. for me. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you know, and and talking of the recovery uh, and the jobs recovery, I was just reading Mish Shedlock on thestreet.com, and he does this fairly extensive analysis of the federal pandemic unemployment compensation programs, the FPUC, and he walks through this kind of alphabet soup uh, of of programs from the Department of Labor. And his takeaway, essentially, is that 30 million people are about to lose the $600 in unemployment benefits that have been added as a result of the COVID pandemic. His analysis is higher, meaning worse than consensus. Most other outlets are pegging that number at closer to 25 million. So he's above consensus, meaning uh, a worse impact from that. It's interesting to think about that when we look at the stasis in the jobs market. And then we look at how this program is clearly going to be rolling off soon unless it's approved. The other thing that I thought was really interesting today uh, was this story uh, about Mitch McConnell. uh, And uh, the GOP seems to be in a little bit of, uh, well, I don't want to say chaos, but maybe disarray. Uh, The coronavirus aid that FPUC that we were just talking about is about to expire. uh, And there seems to be substantial disagreement in the GOP congressional ranks about what to do next. 
you know, I'm I'm not a policy wonk. I'm not someone who totally geeks out on what happens in Washington. But what's interesting to me is Mitch McConnell, to his supporters and his political opponents, has always been seen as a master of parliamentary procedure, as someone who's always one step ahead of the competition in understanding what's happening in the legislative process. But here, frankly, he looks a little bit flat footed. And when you combine all of these factors, the deceleration of the jobs recovery, the rolling off uh, of 600 bucks a week for 30 million people, potentially, maybe 25. Ms. Shedlock has it at 30 million. And then you add this legislative stasis. Uh, it really is a recipe for deceleration in aggregate of the U.S. economy. Yeah, I, I would have to agree. But I, I think what you're seeing is sort of a reconciliation with their so, sort of party line of old and maybe what I don't want to say it has to be done. I, I'm not trying to prescribe policy or anything like that. But um, you know, there are a lot of people out of work, and if and if you, it's been pretty clear that this this increased unemployment insurance has made its way back into the economy. So you can talk about whether that's the good thing for the long term, but if it falls off, it is going to have an effect and a pretty immediate effect. Um, but at the same time. The GOP is the party of of let the economy do the work and let it pull us up and it and a strong economy lifts all boats. Like we need to right. we need to open. So it's it's a conflict between what are their core roots as a party and and what their voter base believes with yeah. with what is a a very unique situation. Yeah, you know, speaking of things that uh, that supporters and opponents both agree on, in this case about President Trump, it is that he is not a typical Republican. He does not cleave to the traditional Republican laissez-faire views in many ways, and uh, and maybe we're seeing some of that split reflected in Mitch McConnell's positioning uh, on the coronavirus relief packages. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, and in some ways, maybe it's a bit of a posturing for what happens post election. You know, if, if people are predicting that, uh, Trump is going to be out and the Republican Party is no longer going to have him as its main leader and driving force behind the policies it believes in, considering like, wait, is it time for us to try and reset and go back to some of the things that we had before? Do we want to go back and be the policy of fiscal responsibility again? Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if the election and the potential, you know, not removal of Trump, but not having Trump in, in the White House um, is making some of these things uh, pop back up onto their radar in terms of uh, fiscal prudence and responsibility. Yeah. You know, I, I'm interested, Max. We, we, we started out the conversation talking about some of the things that you're looking at, uh, specifically U.S. equity markets, the U.S. dollar, uh, and the precious metals complex. And then we shifted here to a, a more broader macroeconomic and even politico-economic conversation. So my question to you is this. 
Do those two conversations in your mind relate at all? In other words, when you think about the things you're watching, and then we have this conversation about macroeconomics, uh, the, the recovery, and the, the current political situation in the US, do you see those things as linked at all? Do they feed into your analysis? Or are you looking at it as something that largely has its own rather fundamental and technical momentum of its own? I'm going to give you a half answer, which is that it depends. So it just depends on the time frame that you're talking about. I know, you know, Tyler is a big flows guy. Like it's all about flows and and what the whales are doing and a lot of the things that we uh, it's like a, a huge pet peeve of mine. And we talk about it on the editorial team all the time is, you know, such and such happened in the markets today as this headline happened. And, yeah. and although the people writing those headlines are um, doing a very good job of limiting their downside risk by saying as, not because of, right. the implication of that headline is that those two events are connected. Um, yeah. So I would say that on the daily basis, the idea that what is happening in the markets and what's happening in precious metals and with the dollar is because Trump did X, Y, Z thing. And there are obviously exceptions to the rule. You know, it's it's not a coincidence if massive things, massive moves, um, say in the dollar happen, like on the day that like we go to war or, so, you know, like right. headlines yeah. can factor in. The um, ultimate, the ultimate weasel word to look for is amid. Amid, when see, yes. When you see um, amid, you know that there's a, I've used it myself. Yeah. yeah. And look, you know, the idea that like we all knew that this fiscal cliff, so to speak, with the $600 was happening. Is right. it going to work? It's let's say it doesn't, let's say it doesn't happen. $600 goes away just for our sake of our argument here. You know, that will work its way into the economic data and that will uh, work its way into um, probably into prices eventually, but it didn't for a period of time, you know, yeah. the market so was round. Max, all very well said. You mentioned also another point that I think is really critical, uh, talking about differing time horizons, differing time frames that you're looking at the market over. I'm curious, what do you have a particular time horizon right now that you have conviction on in a particular direction for one of those asset classes? Uh, how are you looking at it? And what is the interpretation that you're bringing with regard to time horizons? Full disclosure, I'm short the dollar on a you know relatively short time horizon, like two to three months. Um, and, you know, that's around the time frame that I like as as an investor at this moment in time. But at the same time, you know, I really am like that interview this week with Benit Kathari, that idea of taking taking uh, long term views on a very small number of companies, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me, too. That's not how I'm positioned or what I'm looking at, but I think that there are many different ways for people to be, um, to be investors. And it's a great interview I, as well, in terms of, in terms of looking at things from a longer term time horizon. In fact, that was the piece that I liked, uh, this week and spoke about, uh, during our new podcast where we talk about the content at RVDB question for you from the dollar, again, getting back to today's news flow, escalating trade tension with China. China ordered uh, the U.S. to close its uh, its consulate in Chengdu province uh, 
presumably as retaliation uh, to the Trump administration ordering a Chinese consulate in Houston to close. We've got mutual allegations of espionage, stealing research. And just as we were coming into the close today, it crossed the wire that the U.S. just arrested a Chinese scientist who'd been hiding at the consulate, the Chinese consulate in San Francisco. This is the largest bilateral, uh, second largest bilateral trade relationship, rather, with the U.S. after the EU, uh, but accounts for roughly half the U.S. trade deficit. What are your thoughts in that in relation to the dollar? I actually don't have any thoughts in relation to the dollar. So, you know, a lot of the positioning that I'm taking right now is like we are seeing things disconnected from headlines. Right. Um, it's more general framework and and letting the charts speak to me um, and just looking at at trends and being a, a trend follower, um, waiting for confirmation that the trend has ended. So, you know, those sorts of things long term could could play into the dollar, but you know the dollar move happened long before that that event, um, yeah. before trade tensions came back up, and and uh, the price action at least intraday didn't reflect any sort of effect. So it, again, it comes back to that idea of like different time frames, and I think that a lot of these events yeah. that people talk about that that do they do have effects on markets they don't match the time horizon that people are assigning those yeah. effects to them and so I, I just it's not yeah it's not on my radar yeah you know to exactly that point max and and what seems to be almost emblematic of that is uh, I don't know if you were following this uh, one MDB settlement today from Goldman so so basically Goldman settled uh, um, with uh, with Malaysia uh, for 2.5 billion in cash an additional 1.4 billion to cover potential shortfalls if asset uh, forfeiture sales fetch lower prices at auction. Total funding, uh, total fines rather, uh, plus legislative settlement, potentially $4.5 billion uh, to Goldman. Uh, they're obviously going to need to increase their provisioning for legal and regulatory exposure. Some uh, market participants and analysts had estimated the total exposure as high as $10 billion. It, Goldman traded up a bit earlier on the day on the notion that the uncertainty had been removed. No one likes a, an unquantifiable uh, hit to the balance sheet looming out there in the future. And then it mean reverted, and we closed on the day uh, three three up. Uh, I'm sorry, down uh, uh, one spot fifty five, so off less than three quarters of one percent. In other words, markets just shrugged. Yeah, it exactly. So you know, something happens, and then the move the move happens and everyone's like, see, this this headline caused this thing to happen. And then you get a headline and nothing happens. Everyone's like, well, it was obviously priced in. It was just so, so obviously already priced into the stock. So it's yeah. Like, I mean, just, you know, listen, I don't want to be flippant about it. In this case, it may be the fact that there are just broader secular trends that are overpowering uh, the potential for new cycle uh, movement on some of these names. It's possible that under, uh, you know, less uh, less extraordinary circumstances that we would see movement more correlated to news cycle headlines. It seems that right now, and I've been watching markets for a really long time, it seems that right now there's more of a disconnect to your point than I can remember seeing for some time. Yeah, exactly. I'm just I'm just not really too focused on the headlines. But, you know, there are some things I, that doesn't mean I'm not paying attention to what's happening. And, and I do think that moments in time are important. Um, and specifically in equity markets uh, right now, uh, I think we're going to get some answers whether uh, in the coming weeks we see a bid back up under the market. I mean, this is first uh, first couple of, of down weeks in a while. We The equity markets tripped up in June. Um, and since then, it's 
it's been running hot again. Um, so, you know, I think that this, these coming weeks are going to be big for us um, with the combination of the, the things that you're focused on with CARES Act um, rolling off and just seeing whether we're able to, to catch a bid under this market. So I'm in, I'm in kind of a, a wait and see mode over the next two weeks, but I think we're going to get a lot of good information from the price action. So first question, Max, which U.S. Uh, equity market index are you most focused on and why? Uh, I mean, I watch them all. They tell you different things. Um, you know, prior to prior to this, I used to say like anybody who quotes the Dow in points, like just a joke, like get them out of here. Like I don't I don't pay attention to the Dow at all. S and P five hundred was pretty much all that matters. Um, but because of the fact that uh, there are winners and losers from this coronavirus in terms of companies and and trends are accelerated. Um, obviously, the NASDAQ has come back into my purview. I, I pretty much for a while just looked at the S&P and the NASDAQ as, you know, they, they move together for the most part. I mean, not um, a whole lot of momentum on the S&P this week. It's it's off fractionally, I think, 0.3%. Yeah, the, yeah, there's not a whole lot of momentum. It, it went up this week, um, earlier in the week, um, but couldn't couldn't keep its head up through Thursday and Friday. And you know, that's what I was talking about with on the back half of the week where I would have expected um, potentially for my views on the dollar to be wrong and to see some bounces. And the fact that we didn't was like that's that's the type of thing that I pay close attention to is, is when correlation that has been happening tends to it breaks down and that's where what i'm looking for in markets is things that are um that are different that are so to that, that point what correlations are you looking at most closely right now and why um so gold and equities like for instance when when we first started selling off um gold gold was falling it was part of the risk off sell off and and i think a lot of people have been cautious of should when we see another sell off will gold um go with it and we're not seeing it you know gold had a great week this week when markets had some choppiness and gold was strong and it it kept its head up the whole time like that's a change that i think is notable and something to pay attention to same thing with silver like silver was pretty highly correlated with emerging market equities and you could see that but not really you know not really seeing that this week so when those types of changes happen that those are the types of things that i pay attention to yeah max i think we're gonna have to leave it there any final thoughts no i just uh I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm, I'm headed back to New York soon. So I'm excited to, uh, to head back to your neck of the woods. Can you give me a little bit of a preview into what I can expect? What's life like in the city? A lot of, a uh, lot of boarded up shops. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's very strange. It depends what neighborhood you're in here, uh, where I am on the Upper East Side looks pretty normal. A buddy of mine, reporter friend went down to the financial district yesterday, uh, and it said, uh, he thought, you know, he was expecting to see something that looked more or less like normal as it is in his neighborhood. Uh, and he said, ghost town. And I showed me some pictures of the New York stock exchange and, uh, and the ferry, and it is just absolutely deserted down there. So it's kind of a neighborhood by neighborhood basis. Um, but, uh, it is, uh, it is definitely not, uh, the New York city that we have come to know and love. Uh, well, I'm excited. I'm I'm in the I'm in the market for apartments. So who knows? We'll we'll see which neighborhood I end up in. And if you're in the neighborhood for outdoor drinking, you've come to the right place.
Yeah, I, I was talking to uh, Nafal Sanala a few weeks ago, and he's based in Brooklyn, and he was saying, you know, people are outside, they're riding bikes, it's like Paris and Brooklyn. So uh, I don't know, maybe some Parisians would uh, disagree, and uh, we just offended all of our French viewers, but... I'm I'm excited to come back and see what it's like. You know, a lot of people are scared, but I, you know, I fled to Ohio just to have cases spike here. And now it's more dangerous to be here than it is in New York. So time to go back. Hopefully I don't bring it with me. Max's issue of death in Samara. Well played, sir. Max, we think thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ash. A lot of fun. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.